Good to see you. If you're new here, my name is Joel, and we have teaching from the Bible here at Emmanuel every Sunday. Um, we are getting into the last part of uh, an Old Testament book that we've actually spent a long time going through here at Emmanuel. We've, we've been in the book of Samuel, or the books of Samuel, First uh, Samuel, Second Samuel, for about seven years on and off. We've kind of dipped in and out of it. Uh, it's kind of this epic sweeping story, and it's worth taking time in. We've done it in sections, kind of box sets over the years, and we're back in it. We are actually, God willing, going to finish Samuel this term. Um, when it's over, I will have a crisis. I don't know what I'll do with the rest of my life because I've been with this story for, forever. But uh, I, I am so looking forward to getting back into it with you. Uh, we're talking today about uh, really the theme of loyalty um, as much as anything else. The, the experience of uh, disloyalty uh, is one of those sad facts or sad realities of human life that we, we will have all tasted in some way, I suppose, and perhaps some of us in very sharp, bitter ways have felt what it's like to be uh, betrayed, perhaps, or treated with, with, with surprising disloyalty by those from whom we might have expected uh, faithfulness. And uh, that's a terrible thing to walk through. Uh, the, the man whose story Samuel tells in this book, the book of Samuel, it's really about the man David, who goes through at this last later stage of his life a, a season of terrible betrayal from his son, Absalom, who uh, turns against him and usurps his position as king in Jerusalem. So it's a, it's a painful story. It's a, it's, a, it's a bitter story at this stage. And we, we, we get to see a man going through all kinds of turmoil. We also get to see some kind of shining moments of loyalty because I guess you know from experience that when you're going through a time where it seems that many are against you, and you may even feel let down by those close to you. Any, any shafts of light, any moments of loyalty from, from, from anyone, even from surprising people, can overwhelm you. They, they're, so, they're, they're so precious. It's like water in a desert when someone suddenly is faithful to you and loyal to you at times when you feel let down. And so we see a, a mixture of experiences that, that David goes through. And this is... a a book that is all, all of the Bible is about Jesus. Obviously, I guess, I guess for many of us, if we've read some of our Bible, we'll know that Jesus doesn't show up, at least he isn't born in the flesh, until about three quarters of the way through. So for the first 75% of the Bible, Jesus is there, but in ways that you have to sort of trace out. He's there in, in kind of predictions that get made about him. He's there in some of the songs that get sung that kind of seem to be about something more than what they are immediately about, if you know what I mean. He's there even in the stories that are told about other people. So there are people like David or, or like others, like, like Moses, like, like Joseph, like Esther, who have lives that look like Jesus' life. They, they do things that look like the things that Jesus did. And, and there are features of their life that draw attention in the long run to the one who's going to come later in the story, 
Jesus himself. The whole Bible tells this kind of Jesus-shaped story. It's a little bit like the development of, uh, of a piece of technology. You know, just look at this picture on the, the screen here. You've got on the, uh, the left-hand side the, the phones that were being used. Uh, I won't tell you how old I was when these came out, but this is, you know, this is a long time ago, the, the sort of phones that were becoming popular in the 1980s when mobile phones was this new thing. And then on the right, you've got more state-of-the-art, you know, relatively recent model. There are things about these two that are very similar. There are also things about them that are very different indeed. And I suppose you could say it's a bit like that. As you read the Bible, you, you go through it, perhaps if you read from beginning to end, seeing the kind of development of this, 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 this kind of story and these, these kind of prototypes, like the phone on the left, show up. And, and you're kind of actually noticing qualities and characteristics of the one that's to come, who takes it all to the highest level. And that's, that's really what the Bible is, is primarily about, the Lord Jesus himself. So we're looking at him through the life of one of his ancestors from a thousand years before. So you've got a character here who, as a king, a, a, a figure of status and wealth and power, has, has suddenly uh, found that the, the, the refresh button has been pressed. Everything, everything has gone up in the air to, to land who knows where. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. <clears throat> these, these things can happen in our lives. They can happen in society where <clears throat> something like, you know, I guess the financial crisis or, or, a, or a certain event, maybe a 9-11 or, or some particular moment can shift the horizon for everybody, like shaking the kaleidoscope and we're suddenly having to renegotiate things and think, oh, everything I was building my life on is, is out of whack and it, it seems as though I'm going to have to start from, from an earlier point now. And David is going through that to, to, a, to a huge degree now. This is an incredibly disorientating time. Having, having had so much predictability and safety and stability in his life, he's now a refugee. He's, he's, he's going to be a fugitive to some extent. He's, he's, he's on the road hunted for his life by even his own offspring. And, and, and in doing that, he's, he's actually even here reflecting by a kind of pre-shadowing a very important feature of Jesus' life. Even the phrase he uses when he talks to, to Itai in the story, where he says, look, I, I'm going, I do not know where. I'm homeless now. And, and that, that's almost word for word what Jesus said once to a, a prospective disciple who, who wasn't sure whether to follow Jesus. Jesus said to him, listen, birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus' disciples had to get used to that, literally living on the road. They, they would be going place to place. There was very little stability in their lives while they were following this, this Jesus who was journeying, who was, who was traveling place to place. Jesus not only had a lifestyle of, of, of movement from one place to another, but, but actually within within the kind of society that he grew up in and lived in, he was 
something of an outsider, something of an outcast as well. And so his disciples had to get used to the fact that their master was not all that accepted by the, the people of influence and power, and therefore neither would they be. They'd thrown in their lot with an outcast. And, and that became especially true at the point where Jesus was, was taken from them, where Jesus was arrested and taken into to captivity, where Jesus underwent his journey into the wilderness, if you like, taken outside the city gates. And his disciples understood that this was huge for them. It wasn't just that Jesus was being mistreated, that Jesus was being taken away. They understood this, this is going to have its way in their lives. If, if, if their lives were shaped like Jesus's, their, their, their lives would therefore take on some of the suffering, some of the pain, some of the misalignment with the world around them. And the truth, friends, is that 20 centuries later, that's still the case. The follower of Jesus has to accept that he or she follows someone into exile. We follow someone who is content to be out of step with the world. There may be times in the Christian's life where we, we fit in quite nicely. There may even be times in history where the church at large kind of fits in, where society sort of, sort of shapes itself even around the church's agenda. That has been known Hasn't always been a good thing, I have to say. But generally speaking, the Christian is somebody who, by virtue of the fact that they're following Jesus, is a little bit out of step with the world. That's why one of Jesus' friends, Peter, uh, towards the, the end of the New Testament, talks like this when he's writing to the church he's writing to in, in his first letter. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, verse 17, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. David goes into exile. Jesus went into exile. The believer, the church, the Christian needs to be prepared to do the same, to go through the difficulties of being out of step, out, out of society, to be the only Christian in your household, maybe the only Christian in your flat, the only Christian in your family, the only Christian in your office, or even if you're not the only Christian, to be nevertheless a little bit under pressure to fit in culturally, knowing that you can't quite fit in. And the fact of the matter is that the way that society is going generally in cities like Brighton and just in UK or even Western culture generally is, is such that it's, it's going to get not more comfortable, in many ways less comfortable, to follow Jesus. It, 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 won't, it won't be the obvious convenient option, let's put it that way. Because being a Christian will mean, I, I follow someone whose attitudes and whose passions and whose desires and the things he treasures are different than the things the world treasures. They're different than the things that even my friends treasure. And the way society thinks about even issues like marriage and family and things that, that God has real passion about they're going to mean that increasingly the Christian will be like, well, I know I'm different because I'm a Christian. I just, I'm different and I, I see it differently. And, and maybe 20 years ago, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that wouldn't have necessarily marked you out much, but increasingly it will. Increasingly it will mean being a little out of step. And for those of us who are younger, that means a life ahead of some degree of exile. I think about my kids when I say this stuff, because I want my kids to follow Jesus, but I'm inviting them to follow someone who suffered. And I've got to face that. I've got to face the fact the Bible calls it 
exile. So we need to be, be real about that. But we also need to understand that there's a way to respond to that. These stories are here to serve you. So if you're following Jesus or if you're considering following Jesus, if you're here or in Shoreham or Hove or the, or the race course saying to yourself, do, do I want really to know him? Do I want to follow? Can I trust him? Listen, I want what I have to say to you today to answer that question directly because I believe that the, the emotional resources for getting through exile are found in the great outcast himself, in Jesus himself. And they're even hinted at in this story. So I want us to look at some some emotional strengths that are on display in this story. We're going to look at David's strength, and then we're going to look at Itai's strength. And then we're going to ask ourselves, how did they get these things? Where does it come from? But first of all, let's look at David's kindness. That's what I want to see here. David's kindness, his strength in exile is shown in his amazing selflessness towards Itai. You've got to imagine yourself, and we'll look at verse 19 and 20 to make this point. David has lost, it, it feels like, everything. He's not just lost his position. He's lost family. His dear son, his favorite son, frankly. He's not just lost him. He's turned on him. It's so painful. I don't know if there's many things emotionally that a, a person, a father or whoever, could go through that would be quite so emotionally draining and demanding. And, and then the nations turn, even the way it uses that language, doesn't it? The hearts of the men of Israel have turned to Absalom. That's a big, sweeping statement. The nation who used to be so loyal, used to love David, sing songs about David. Now they've been won over by your usurping son. This snake of a son has taken their hearts away. It's heartbreaking. And, and in that situation, you would long for a friend. You long for a band of brothers, right? You, you long especially for the security of a few swordsmen, some people who you could trust. And he seems to have that. In, in by the way, a very unlikely source, this character Itai, it says he's a Gittite, which means it's from the, the, the place he's from is probably Gath, which is where the Philistines came from. Basically, this guy is from the Philistines' tribe or tribes. In other words, he's not an Israelite. He's, he, if you think about it, he's from Goliath's tribe. <laughs> he's one of the baddies. That's where he's from. He's one of the tribes that would have fought against Israel. Now, David somehow made friends with some of the Philistines, somehow won them over to his own cause. And these were people who were outsiders with Israel, outsiders with the God of Israel, but they found a place in David's heart and they they found a place at his table, as it were, and connected through him. And and they were actually his friends by this time in the story, some of them. And and David is faced with this guy saying, look, I'll come with you. And then David says to him these surprising words in, in verse 19, why do you also go with us? Why? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner. And also an exile from your home. You only came yesterday. By the way, it doesn't mean yesterday literally. He probably means you, you've only just really arrived. You know, this is, you're recently part of Israel. This is a new home, a new family. It's all new for you. You finally settled. You finally found your home. You know, the theme of home is a very big one in the Bible. And it's a very big one in you as well, isn't it? Don't we all long for a home? Don't you? A sense of belonging? A sense of knowing that you're 
You found your home. I'm welcome here. I'm safe here. We long for it. It's just all you sing the song, you hear the music. So many famous stories are about that deep human longing that we have. We just do. This is a story about a man who's been thrown out of his home. And David, I guess partly because of what he's going through himself. Isn't it interesting that David, because he's being exiled, he's very sensitive to the experience of this other man. He doesn't just care about him generally because, well, David's a caring person. He's, he's one of God's people. No, no, no. He goes, he goes into his care thoughtfully. He's, a, he's considerate. He's intelligent in the way he cares. He's considering things from Ittai's point of view, saying, this guy's only just found his place at the table with God's people, and now he's going to be exiled again. That is bitter for him. David feels it and feels it to the point where he even takes this courageous step of saying, you can go back to the city. I won't hold it against you. You go back. You go back. That's amazing selflessness. He says, shall I today make you wander about with me since I go I know not where? Go back. Take your brothers with you. May the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Now that is selflessness. It would be anyway, but this is a guy going through the worst pressure he's felt in years, decades probably. And his, his thoughts are with the other one. I find that striking, don't you? I find that that doesn't seem even natural to me. It, it seems like the attitude of someone who's, who's got somewhere in terms of his perspective, he sees things from a selfless point of view. In a way that I, it's good, it's mature humanity, isn't it? It's, when, it's what people can be like at their best. I guess it's what mums and dads are like at their best when they pour out their lives for their kids. And their kids can be so unaware of it. Kids, even if they're pleasant, nice kids, generally go through their opening years of their lives quite unaware of how much has been poured out for them by their parents. Maybe some of you never thought of it that way. Maybe it's time for some of you to start thanking your parents. You never even considered how much they suffered for you. Maybe you're just aware of how much suffering they've caused you. Well, that's a very individualistic perspective. We don't realize how much people have done for us. And sometimes people who are parents, they know a lot about it. Maybe husbands and wives are ahead of the queue on this as well because they, they spend their life having to learn to say, no, this isn't about me. It's about you. It's about us and not just me. I'm going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to support you and love you, put you first. But it takes a certain level of maturity, spiritual maturity, to do that. David's modeling it here. But I tell you, he's modeling it by actually reflecting the one who modeled it perfectly through his whole life and especially in his death. See, David is actually doing this in the very same place. It says he crossed the brook Kidron, just a little a valley outside Jerusalem where this, this little stream went through. And David is crossing over and it's at that very place that Jesus was the night he was betrayed. And you can read in John chapter 18, his attitude, when the, the guards came armed to the teeth to take Jesus away, Jesus turns to them and says this in, in John chapter 18, verse 8, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. I've I, I got to stop and think, what, what an amazing person Jesus is. That in the midst of the greatest pressure and turmoil, Every excuse would be there to be thinking selfish thoughts, to see everything within the confines of self-pity. Jesus is not like that. 
He is not. He sees things through the eyes of his beloved disciples, in this case, his children. His, his, he's like a good shepherd with sheep. He lays his life down for them. He cares about them. He always does. And by the way, these disciples were not particularly impressive. They hadn't really stood out for him, kept falling asleep at this point when they're supposed to be praying with him. They're about to deny him, some of them. They all scatter. They all run away like cowards. Jesus, his whole attitude is, don't you touch those men. They're mine. You want me? Take me away. Take me away to be crucified, not these men. David is giving us a little clue about this. He's showing the similar strands of, of kindness and love. And, and friends, frankly, I don't find that very natural in myself. I don't know about you. I wonder, I wonder if you're the same. I, I think it's a, a, maybe in our generation, I say your generation, a pressure especially. We're used to a context culturally where the, the, per, the individual person's emotional experience is, is so h- highly respected. If I'm going through pressure, if I'm going through difficulty, especially if I've gone through oppression, if I've had tough things in my background, in my childhood, then I'm really kind of permitted by the culture to, to see that as sovereign in a situation. You know what I mean? I, I basically, I don't have to love other people because I've got burdens. I've got emotional burdens and you should look after me. You should care for my burdens. You should meet my needs. I find that even, frankly, temptation to think that way even in my marriage. If I'm feeling sorry for myself, to say, right, I'm going to actually love my wife first, even when I, should, I feel like she should be loving me right now. And Jesus isn't like that. David here is not like that. There's a selflessness on display. I wonder how it feels for you when someone comes to you with their pain and pressure when you're feeling yourself carrying some of your own. How do you handle that? How do you handle that when you're walking through a tunnel of darkness and there's someone else that comes with their pain? Oh, I can't help you. I've got my own problems. And you should care for me. And we might feel we've got permission to do that. There's places like in Galatians chapter 6 where Paul says to the church, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Carry one another's burdens. (laughs) If that was the only verse in the Bible, I know what I'd be like. It says here you're supposed to carry my burdens. Well, here they are. Feel the weight of them. I come to church with my burdens, and your book says you've got to carry my burdens. That's how we translate it naturally, isn't it? Oh, good, I can go to church. They look after your burdens there. But Paul doesn't only say that. A few verses later, a couple of verses later, he says, each one should carry their own load. Oh, okay, what does that mean? Well, we should carry each other's burdens. We should look to one another's needs. But we shouldn't make that into a, a strange kind of permission to be ultimately just just blurting out our needs without considering how God might be wanting to train me to love others through this. And some of the ways that God will mature you as you follow Jesus will be through you, even when it hurts, putting other people first. Wow, really? Yeah, sometimes. That's what I'm seeing here. That's what I see in my Savior. How do you do that? We'll come back to that before we finish. Let me just move on. So the second thing, I talked about David's kindness. I want us to see before we close, Ittai's loyalty. Ittai's loyalty, which is there in verse 21. He says, 
as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. What a powerful statement of loyalty. And that is just overwhelming. I love the, that verse. Every word weighs a ton. Such a powerful declaration of loyalty. It's funny because the following verse is kind of underwhelming. David's response is a little bit deadpan. I don't know if you agree. He says, and David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. Imagine Ittai's like, did you hear what I just said? Not a lot of emotional give there, David. But I mean, I guess you know, the Bible, if it, if it told you all the things David said, it would be even longer. So I guess it's just not telling us all the detail. The, the point is the loyalty on display here is so, is so profound, is so rich. Because this man's following him into the wilderness. Into, who knows? Not just himself, but his kids. Did you notice that? He's taking his kids with him. It's one thing to follow Jesus in 21st century Brighton. It's probably another to, to encourage your kids to do the same. I'm inviting my kids into a life of exile. Come with me, kids. We're going to follow Jesus. Really? What, you're going to teach me the Bible? Stand out from the world that doesn't like the Bible, doesn't like what it says? Yeah. Really? Are we going to, are we going to raise generations to follow Jesus? Yeah. It's no small thing, friends. It's quite a big deal. But that's what he does. I'll come with you. Me and my family will follow you. See, I guess for, for a long time in the UK, it, it was potentially acceptable, possible, to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, or at least seem to be. You know, say that you were. Say that, oh, I'm a church guy, I'm a Christian. But genuinely be completely in step with the whole world and agree with everything anyone says. So, yeah, I'm a Christian. And it's kind of nominal. It's kind of skin deep. Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't, doesn't cost you anything. There's no demand whatsoever. I tell you, those days are over. They're gone. They're gone. The way society's gone, that's not going to happen anymore. If you follow Jesus, wow, you're going to stand out. Maybe 30 years ago, it wouldn't have stood out. Maybe for Ittai, he was used to being David's man. David's the king. It's nice and easy. Everyone's, everyone's David's man. He's the king. Now he's the outcast. What does that look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus when it's not cool? When it's really not? Well, he said, I'm, I'm with you. And I'm, I'm taking my family. We're coming. I, I, I'm with you. That is loyalty. Now, I want us to do, in the last few minutes, I want us to do this some work here because... The challenge of this story is potentially just pressure, isn't it? You've got David showing exemplary selflessness, putting the needs of someone else before his own, even under terrible emotional strain. Don't know about you, I, I don't, that, doesn't fill, that doesn't make me giddy up with joy. It doesn't make me want to dance and sing. Just, oh gosh, is that what I've got to do? that the ideal put before me? And then you've got Ittai, who's courageously going into the wilderness. I'm, I'm, so far, this sermon has, has put pressure on, burden on, or it should have. If, you, if it hasn't, you've not been listening. It's demanding this stuff. But is that what Jesus came to do, to put demands on us, to put burdens on us, to weigh us down with a heavy load? No, he, he said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. 
So somehow here, there must be some clues. How do you find the strength in exile? That's a big question, right, for us. How are we going to find the emotional strength to love others, to to journey with an outcast? How? Well, I was looking at this story, and I see some clues. Let me just draw your attention, first of all, to David's confidence in God's justice. His confidence in God's justice. That's the first thing I see here. I see that in in verses uh, 25 and 26, where this peculiar thing happens. These uh, friends of Ittai have come out. They've They've gone past David as he stood there. There's a few people, a few hundred loyal people, walked out of the city, wandering out. And then there's this moment where the Ark of the Covenant is lifted along by these two Levites, and they, they kind of linked with the priesthood, and it's this, special, it's this special object, the Ark of the Covenant, constructed in the wilderness hundreds of years before, uh, during the time of Moses, out of gold and carefully crafted. And it, was a, it wasn't just a beautiful box, it was a sacred box, the most sacred object on planet Earth. It was the place of God's dwelling. Where the Ark went was where God went. To the point where literally when it was lowered into the River Jordan in the book of Joshua, the river stopped so that God's people could walk across the river on dry land. It's this extraordinary object. Problem is, because of its importance spiritually, the people of Israel had begun, only a a generation before this story, to treat it with presumption. They took it into battle like a rabbit's foot. They didn't actually respect God. They just saw the, the box as their kind of handle on God. You know, if the box is, is God's special magic box and we just take it with us into battle so that God has to help us. He has to be on our side, even though our hearts were far away from God. And they, they had to learn their lesson terribly. David, David had learned the lesson. He knew that wasn't the way to treat God. This is a precious item It's not for me to just take away with me. I cannot manipulate God that way. I cannot cannot try and understand and know all the outcomes of life and and pressure God into giving me exactly what I want to happen in the next few days, weeks, months of my life. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't tell you what's going to happen. All I can say is God is just. God is trustworthy. And so he says that. You, you read down in, in uh, the, 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 his response to these men. He says, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. See, David has understood he's not God. And it's going to exhaust him to try to be God. And so he understands his part is simply to trust God, to put his life at God's disposal and say, God, I will do the right thing. I will let you decide the outcome. I don't know what that will mean, but I will let you decide. I want to tell you, you will have to get to points in your life where you decide whether or not you'll do that. You will get to points where you'll have to decide I could either do something now that manipulates the outcome. 
where I could engineer things and set it up my way. It would lack integrity. It wouldn't be the right thing. I know it would be against what he says, but it would work and it would give me a sense of control and I would be able to have things as I want them. Because if I don't do that, well, I guess my only other option is I've just have to trust God. I tell you, God will get you to points in your life where that's the decision before you. Where trusting God will be a big step. You think, well, what does this mean to my, my job, to my boss, to my office? What does it mean to my financial situation? Doing what God says now could, I don't know what, could, I'm throwing myself into a storm if I do this. And as long as you think like that, you will be exhausted. Because you'll live your life under the bizarre, crazy idea that yours is to know the outcome of everything. That you're supposed to know how the world works and you're supposed to control it all and control your life like a master chess player that knows exactly what to do next. Give up. It's exhausting. Just trust God. Make the right call. Do the right thing. And let him decide. Let him decide. Why, why can you do that? Because you know in your heart, like David does, God is just. He will do the right thing. I can trust him to be good. I don't know what it will mean. It might mean that everything will be rosy within a day. <laughs> it might mean that within a couple of days, everything's set straight. Within three days, that was the Easter story. I just, I, I do what Jesus did in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says he, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's, that's Jesus. That's David. I, I don't have to know. I'm going to let God be God here. I'm going to entrust myself to him. Jesus goes down into death through doing that. And sometimes trusting God will mean going down into a certain death. You'll die to things. You'll lose things. But God is no man's debtor. <laughs> God, God is the God of Easter Sunday. God raises up those who entrust themselves to him. Maybe you've got to discover that for yourself. You know it from the Easter story. You know it from in the Bible. My friend, get to know it in your life. Get to know the God of Easter Sunday. The God who breaks in when you've said, here goes. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to do the right thing. God help us to do that. That's how David finds strength. He finds strength by trusting himself to God. And he's released from the exhaustion of pretending to be God. There's strength there for you as well, whoever you are. The, the, the other thing I want us to see is the strength for Ittites. There in the... Well, let me just say, I'll show you from the verse in a moment, but I want you to see Ittai has confidence in God's servant. David had confidence in God's justice. Ittai, he shows confidence in God's servant. That's what we see here in his life. And, and what I mean by that is that he's, he's watching a guy lose everything. And he's watching and seeing what's in his heart. He sees what David's made of. Even going back up to verse 14, it's interesting. David said to all his servants who are with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down the ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. What's in David's heart? The city, the people. I'll leave the city. I'll go outside the walls. 
I'll even leave the ark. I'll, I'll, I'll leave the presence of God. You can take me away. It's like, it's like Jonah going into the sea. It's like Jesus going into the cross. He's saying, I'll go outside the city walls. I'll take Absalom's wrath on myself. I'll take the danger. I don't want it to strike the city. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what he does for you and me. That's what he does for the least of his disciples. Yeah, me and you, the ones who fall asleep, the ones who, the ones who fail him, <laughs> who are disappointed with ourselves often, know that we're not brilliant disciples. We've got to hear that. Don't any of us leave this meeting thinking, oh, I, I see what you're saying. I've got to be loyal like Ittai, or I've got to be selfless like David. No, don't even try. The nicest person in the room, the nicest person watching this will hit the wall at some point. There's no resources in our strength. But when we have our eyes on the Savior, on the servant of God who said, I will take, I will take the worst. I will go outside the city walls. I will be nailed to a cross. I will suffer this moment, this hour, this day of anger. I'll, I'll come under it myself for the sake of these ones so they can be free. And Ittai sees that love, sees that selflessness. Maybe in, he, in, in a way he's seeing Jesus through David in a way that he wouldn't understand, but it, it is enough to transform his perspective and help him to see, I can trust this one. <laughs> the one who, when he's going through the worst pressure... He sympathizes with his weak disciples. <sighs> There's no one like Jesus, I tell you. Close as David gets, he's still not quite Jesus. The times when his disciples, like me, are at their weakest. I tell you, I look at my Christian life sometimes and think, oh, the worst Christian, the worst pastor. I'm so, I'm so aware of weakness, weakness, weakness. And my, my foolish perspective is to think that Jesus is in the same mentality. Yeah, I've noticed your weaknesses. I noticed you're a failure. That's not his way. What is his way? It says in the book of Hebrews, we don't have a high priest who doesn't sympathize with our weaknesses. He sees you in your weakness. Just like David sees Ittai, he's thinking, I care about this guy, what he's gone through. Listen, my friend... If you love him, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, even from a weak, faltering, doubting heart, you have a saviour who cares about you in your weakest moments. He's, he's sympathising with you. He's not looking for a moment to blast you. He's caring for you in your need. And Ittai senses that and says, I, I trust you. I'll go with you. I'll, I don't need to be in the city. I don't even need to be near the ark. <laughs> because for me, the presence of God is where you are, David. That's what you've got to come to in your life, friend. There'll be things that will be taken from you if you follow Jesus. There'll be credibility. There'll be popularity sometimes. There might even be career options that will be taken from you. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to us in exile as the years go on. We may suffer things sometimes. We may get limited. We may lose some of our freedoms. I don't know. I'm a pastor. I sometimes think, what's going to happen to me? What a foolish thing to be obsessive about. I want to go where Jesus goes. Because 
He's the one with the presence of God. I want to be where he is. <laughs> I don't care if that means exile or city, if that means throne or desert. It's where Jesus is. It's where Jesus is. That's why Paul in the New Testament, when he, when he writes to the Philippians, he, he, he says the same thing, basically. He says, I, I'll serve him by my life or my death. I'll serve it. So for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Either way, I get Jesus. I get Jesus. Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish preacher, hundreds of years ago, I'll read to you what he said. He says, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without you, it would be a hell. If I could be in hell and have you still, it would be a heaven to me, for you are all the heaven I want. That's how we find strength, friends. We find it in him. We find that he's enough. Anyone who would love us the way he does, we can find strength from him, find that he's enough. None of us get to be the hero in the end. We just found the person that's most trustworthy in the universe. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, let us go outside the camp and suffer with him. Suffer shame. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Wherever he is, wherever he is, listen, wherever he is, that's where you want to be. Wherever he takes you. I don't know where he'll take you. I don't know what he'll do with you, but you could not be in a better place and neither could your families and people that you take with you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who is everything that we need. And we pray you would teach us to entrust ourselves to his keeping and find in him everything we need for life and godliness. In Jesus' name, amen.